0: Welcome on in to the Tony Parks Podcast. Thank you so much for being with us here today. As always, you can be a part of the show. Just make sure to give us all your feedback there on all forms of social media at Tony Parks 801 uh, You can email me, TonyParks801 at gmail.com. You hear the music coming in. Chicago, and there's a reason why that uh, music is making its way on into this episode, and that is because I am really excited about the guest that we have here today. It is the legendary play-by-play broadcaster of the Salt Lake Buzz, and then Stingers, and then Bees, and uh, a guy that I'm honored to uh, call as a friend as well. It is Steve Klauke with us here on the Tony Parks Podcast. Steve, how are you, man?
1: Doing well, Tony. How about yourself?
0: I, I'm doing fine. Um, I will have to say... That, you know, a handful of months ago, when we were thinking about what July would be like, it would be that scenario where we're getting ready for the 4th of July type stuff with fireworks and probably three games in a row with fireworks. And I'd probably be doing stuff to get ready for the Salt Lake Summer League, you know, for the, the Jazz Summer League and the NBA. But wow, man, here we are. And you and I are chatting. And man, do things have a different look.
1: They really do, Tony. As a matter of fact, it was interesting. Somebody uh, in a tweet yesterday asked me, "When's the last time you were able to spend the summer at home with your wife?" And I had to think about it for a little bit, and I had, had to be 1993 because that was the year before the buzz came to town. And mm-hmm. so once the jazz season was over with, there was just, other than the talk show uh, with uh, Dave Blackwell and Ron Boone, there was nothing else really for me to do at that point until at least the summer league came around so it was uh, uh it, it it's been a very interesting uh, few months and uh, uh, one i hope i never have to go through again until retirement
0: yeah but when you first got here in salt lake city did you ever envision that you know what, 27 years later that it would look, 27, 28 years later, it would look like it does now with you still here, that many years broadcasting, that many games, and just kind of what you are to this
1: community? Well, it's interesting, Tony, from the standpoint that when I took the job uh, in 1991 with the, the Jazz and and Radio to be a part of the pregame, halftime, and postgame show as well as the nightly talk show, I kind of felt that my, my chances for the opportunity to do play-by-play, which was my first love, was over with. But I needed to, I needed to stay in sports and I needed to, to have a job because before I got the job with the Jazz, I'd been unemployed for 19 months. And so it was an interesting uh, scenario from the standpoint I was interested in, in, in being a, a part of this. And you know, just to keep my toes in the water, I convinced them the first fall I was here to broadcast the two, at that time the 3A and 4A, Football championship games, and then uh, a few uh, the next summer, uh, the men's fast pitch softball world tournament came, and I was able to do uh, those games. But then uh, uh, I had no idea that uh, AAA baseball was going to come. And fortunately, there was great interest upon the the Jazz and uh, kissing Radio at the time to, to procure the broadcast rights. So uh, it really laid out perfectly for me. Obviously uh it, it made for some interesting times knowing that I, I'd be around the Jazz during the season but missed the playoffs, which was, uh, you know, a, a tough to do because that was a, a fun part because that was like the one time of the year that I got to, to travel with the Jazz. But uh, uh, no, I, I I couldn't have imagined that, uh, you know, I guess it'll be 29 years in August that uh, Uh, I would have had this opportunity and was supposed to start my 27th season with baseball and, and still be a part of it.
0: Yeah, and you, people don't know this, when you got the job calling games for the Salt Lake Buzz, you know, it's a competition. There are a lot of people out there going for that job, but you beat out some great competition. A lot of people don't know this, but Joe Buck was one of the guys going for that job, and you beat him out for that position
1: yeah poor guy. I hope it worked out for him, but uh, no I and the <laughs> I don't know what is, he's
0: doing uh, now, but yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. the funny thing about uh, that, Tony is the fact that I never knew that until maybe four or five years ago, the two men who who brought me here, Randy Rogers and Randy Rigby at Media Day at the ballpark for the Bees. That's when they first told me what had happened, and I was uh, I was stunned by that. But I think uh, their reasoning was pretty sound that they felt that uh, uh, they just wanted to use uh, Salt Lake as a stepping stone, and so that uh, he wouldn't have been here very long anyway.
0: And they got the better guy for the job, if, <laughs> if I may say so. You, know?
1: Well, I, I, you <laughs> know, it was interesting. It almost came to an end about uh, four years, five years. Uh, afterwards, because uh, while I was enjoying it, uh, uh, the, the baseball, uh, there were some people in the jazz front office that uh, didn't want me doing baseball, that they wanted to, me to do the WNBA team that had come to town. And, and, and finally, I had talked to several people, and, including Larry Miller himself, and I asked him uh, point blank if, uh, if I say no to doing the, the, the stars. Uh, would that hurt me in the future for when Hot Rod retired? And Larry just flat out said, "No, I don't. I'll talk to them. I don't want you doing the Stars. I'd much rather listen to you on a summer's night on my porch doing a baseball game." So that's uh, that's how I wound up not doing the Stars. And I think they had three different uh, play-by-play people during their stretch. As a Matter of fact, the last year of the Stars, I actually volunteered to do both and had put together a schedule of doing every buzz game that i could and then and then filling the rest of the schedule in with the stars and i think i would have missed only maybe 25 30 baseball games to do the stars but mm-hmm. i remember general manager tim howells at the time said uh, this is too important a season for the stars we need somebody fully dedicated to doing the stars so that's uh how that came about
0: yeah so so larry was the guy saying, no, that's where I want you to be. That's where I want to hear you calling games. that to feel good, right? Like the, like a guy yeah, in that exactly. position to say, no, actually, because, because they didn't own that team at the time. They didn't own right. the, the buzz. Yeah.
1: No, the, yeah, they, they didn't. Uh, Joe Buzis was the owner of the, uh, of, of the team and, uh and, and actually, if I'm not mistaken, the NBA actually owned the WNBA teams. The, the Jazz just operated it for them here. So uh, it was an interesting scenario. In fact, uh, one of the other people that I talked to about the whole uh, uh, situation was Carl uh, Malone. I, I went up to Carl at a practice back then, it's still at Westminster College, and <laughs> said, uh, I said to Carl, Carl, you know, I, I have this opportunity, uh, but, you know, the baseball, which, which would you think that i should do and he said stick with baseball uh, so uh, that's uh, in the long run that's what uh, i wound up doing obviously yeah
0: yeah well he didn't describe it by saying hey you need to do a 360 right like he didn't he didn't <laughs>
1: because well, then in a, in a, you know in a, it, technically mathematically speaking yes he said do a 360 right right but like he got it
0: this time <laughs> what i think is interesting steve is You know, minor league baseball is very different than major league baseball, but what I found so incredible, and it was one thing that really attached me to want to work in the industry, but also to work with you, because here's something I don't think a lot of people understand. There is nothing worse than treating something minor league, right? These players know that they're in the minor leagues. There are people in and around the stadium and the team that know they're in the minor leagues what was so important to the culture that you helped set in is everything was treated with major league responsibility and major league mindset. Is that something that you wanted to instill day one that you had a chance to be a part of that?
1: I, I think Tony, it's something I've wanted to instill uh, a day one in my career because uh, I, I remember those high school football games that I did and the, uh, the the following Monday, Randy Rogers called me into the office, and he says, "I felt like I was listening to the Super Bowl." A- and uh, and I told him, "Well, quite frankly, for a lot of these kids, it's the last game they'll ever play. Right. It is their Super Bowl." And uh, and I've always uh, thought of that. Uh, I, you know, I did as much game prep uh, when I got the chance to fill in for the Angels as I did back in, say, 1981. I think it was when I did the. Uh, the Illinois Little League uh, State Championship Games at the whole tournament. So uh, that's always been my philosophy. It's a big deal to them, so it should be a big deal to me. I should add that that championship game, uh, Barrington, Illinois, beat that uh, Jackie Robinson West team out of Chicago 3-0 on a three-run homer by future Major League catcher Dan Wilson. Wow. (laughs) And I still have my scorebook from it.
0: That's awesome. So that's one name that kind of got brought back from the past. Have there been many other times where a name has surfaced and you go, no way, and then you have to remember (laughs) how many years ago it was, right? Like, what are some of those other names outside of, like, minor league baseball that have Mm -hmm. popped up where you thought to yourself, wow, I was just calling that kid's games, you know?
1: Exactly. Well, there's a few that come to mind. One was, uh, uh, it's funny, when I found my dan wilson scorebook card Uh, i also found a program from a high school all-star game in 1981 between chicago area high school all-star basketball team and the chinese taipei national champions of high school basketball and on the women's game one of the players on the roster was kathy sloan jerry's daughter and the funny thing was, it was marked next to her name. I had written down, injured, she couldn't play. Hmm. Who replaced her? Jenny Klauke, my second cousin, who eventually <laughs> became the first female ever to get a four-year scholarship, athletic scholarship, at Notre Dame. And of course, when I first came here, uh, a lot of times I had a chance. My first job with the, in, in the Jazz game broadcast was doing the post-game interviews in the visitor's locker room and a lot of the guys I would see were guys that that I had broadcast at least some high school games of, everyone from uh, Michael Finley to Jawan Howard. And uh, there was one case where uh, the Jazz won a game at home against Orlando, and uh, Nick Anderson uh, really cost the magic the game with some poor free-throw shooting. And so I went up to him after the game and said, uh, Nick, can I have a few minutes with you? He says, uh, "No, not not tonight. This was a, this was a tough night." And I said, "Okay." Well, I promise I won't uh, uh, let uh, Coach Hambrick know what happened. And Bob Hambrick was his high school coach at Simeon High School in Chicago. And and uh, he he looked up and said, "How do you know that?" And I said, "Well, I I did some Simeon games uh, in the state tournament when they were there." And he said, "Come on, let's talk."
0: <laughs> um, did. He happened to know that the poor free throw shooting that night would not be the last time that that happened.
1: (laughs) I'm sure he was hoping that was the case, but obviously it was not.
0: Don't worry, young man. There will be bigger stages you'll make this happen.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And and actually, too, just my my first job in radio in South Carolina, uh, I was there for the summer of 1973, and at the time I was making $85 a week to supplement my income I took over as the public address announcer for the Orangeburg Cardinals out of the old Western Carolinas league. It was a co-op team, but 95% of the players were supplied by St. Louis. And I remember I was paid $5 plus a hot dog to do the PA. There you go. And one of the players on that team was Randy Hoffo, who would later go on to uh, fame as Randy, the macho man Savage.
0: No, that's right. Cause he played minor league baseball. I forgot about right,
1: that. Right, Right. And then, when I went back to Orangeburg in the late 70s, uh, when it was back to being, when it was a full-time station, I did American Legion games, and on that American Legion team that won the South Carolina State Championship in 1978, two future major leaguers, Herman Winningham and the late Mike Sharperson, as well as Mookie Wilson's two younger brothers, and the first baseman for the team, uh, Bob Pauling. He was actually uh, our leading home run hitter. He later went on to be a place kicker. At Clemson, he handled the extra points and the field goals from under 30 yards when uh, the Nigerian Obed Ariri took care of the long-range field goals, and eventually Mm -hmm. Bob was a fifth-round pick of the St. Louis football Cardinals. So, yeah, there have been a few kids uh, along the way that have gone on to, to, to fame, not necessarily fortune.
0: Yeah. Steve Klocky's with us here today on the Tony Parks podcast. Uh, Of course, you can uh, follow Steve um, at SLB's radio. You're always so accessible, too. Like, I mean, you're you're calling games most times and throughout the year, you're up in the booth and all of that. But you love to engage with the fans and connect with the fans um, when you get that chance. What uh, have been some of your favorite interactions that you've had just with the fans here in Salt Lake City and those who've appreciated you know, what you've brought for the game of baseball in the state, and then just all sports altogether?
1: Well, you know, that's one of the reasons why I like to be prepared uh, early and, and done with my preps. Like an hour before game time, it gives me the opportunity to uh, walk the concourse, see some familiar faces, and answer questions and all that. I can remember it was about the third or fourth season, and this uh, guy came up to me and said, Hey, my my four year old can do your home run call. I said, "Well, come on, young man, let me let me hear it." And he was so scared; he he never never gave it to me. He was uh, he was frightened by my presence. I guess I don't know. But uh, like just the other day, um, I got a, a contact from a, a gentleman on Twitter whose uh, uh, son just signed a letter of intent to play baseball at the University of Utah, and uh, in his uh, uh, tweet. He also posted a picture that he had taken of me and his son when his son was eight years old, and he was wearing a ball cap, and uh, we were in the stands uh, at uh, before a jazz game.
0: Were you like? Were you stunned when, when you saw the picture? Could you tell oh, right away? Yes. Yeah, you're just like. Uh,
1: yeah yes. I've occasionally and, and go ahead. In, in some of the in some of the recent years, I remember uh, there was a couple, an elderly couple from Calgary. That, uh, like a lot of uh, older Calgarians, they'll spend their summers, or excuse me, they'll spend their winters down in Arizona, and they always would time their trip back to Calgary with our first homestand so that they could catch a couple of games and they'd wear their calgary cannons jackets and their calgary cannons hats and so it was always fun to see them and uh and talk to them and uh and uh, see how they were doing and uh, uh reminisce about the old days of uh burn stadium up in uh, calgary
0: yeah that that place i never had a chance to be there but uh you you know all about those
1: digs right yeah just <laughs> Some, the, the 88 steps to the press box not that i counted because <laughs> they didn't have an elevator
0: <laughs> was that one of the places with no ac what was the, what was the place with well, no... you
1: didn't need air conditioning in calgary i mean we, I remember having snow flurries on August the first there, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, if you're north of montana you uh you definitely don't know what you know what's going to happen at any given time I remember uh one summer being in Montana when it snowed on the fourth of July, it wasn't mm-hmm. like dumping snow but it was like people were lighting off fireworks with you know snowflakes <laughs> dropping to the ground. It was one of the more stunning things. Uh, that I think I've ever experienced. Well,
1: Calgary is situated a little bit, cl- a lot cl- i should say, a lot closer—to the Rocky Mountain Range than Edmonton is. Even though Edmonton's three hours further north, uh, Calgary seemed to have uh, a more uh, fluctuating weather because of their proximity to the mountains. And so it was—it uh, was always interesting uh, to, to get up there and find out what what we were going to have this time.
0: Oh yeah, Steve Clocky with us here today on the Tony Parks podcast. You um first get here and you're working somewhat with a guy that you had a chance to watch for years in Chicago and that being Jerry Sloan what were your thoughts were you just like you've got to be kidding me there's no way all of this came together quite like that so what were your immediate thoughts about working with a guy that you were so familiar with in a different way and now to be up close with
1: oh it was You know, it was funny, Tony. When uh, I got the job, first of all, I was excited about the job itself, excited that uh, my time of unemployment was over with. But then I got to thinking, wow. I mean, before Michael Jordan came around, Jerry Sloan was Mr. Chicago Bull. And he was uh, uh, a a guy that you idolized as a kid growing up from a basketball standpoint. So I I was really thrilled. And I remember... Uh, going to a game their first season, which is at the old International Amphitheater on the south side. It was right next door to the Chicago Stockyards, and quite frankly, it smelled like it. And So when I had a chance to meet Jerry for the first time, it was that we used to have a a listener luncheon at Tony Roma's at Trolley Square, and uh, I introduced myself, and, and then I said, now, Jerry, I have to ask you, how could you guys play at the amphitheater? It was right next to the stockyards and it smelled like it. <laughs> he quickly responded, you forget, I'm from a farm in southern Illinois. It smelled like money to me. <laughs> and he actually he, then, the, then he said, actually, the worst part about that building is the two teams had to save, share the same shower it was just that uh, the two teams were separated by a flimsy plastic curtain and the drains never worked. There was already, or there was always three inches of, of water at the bottom of the shower. It was totally <laughs> disgusting.
0: Oh man. Oh. And they talk but about, no,
1: it was uh, it was really exciting. I, mean, I still have game programs from the uh, late sixties and early seventies. When, uh, when he played, it was uh, a lot of fun. And Cause back then I would go to about six or seven uh, games a year. I mean, in the winter time I mean Black Hawk season tickets or individual tickets were really hard to come by. Season tickets were wheeled at that point where, you know, Bulls games were very accessible. They were only averaging uh, you know, five, six, seven thousand uh 7,000 uh, fans a game and so it was uh, uh, for me, I just I just liked sports, and actually there were times where I would sit in a corner of Chicago Stadium with, where nobody else was sitting. I would have a tape recorder and, and practice my my play by play. So it was, uh, you know. But, but being around uh, Coach Sloan was a uh, was a was a joy, and yeah, you know, he wasn't a guy that really enjoyed too much uh, you know, looking back on those days. But he always had some some great stories. I remember. We were coming up on the anniversary of his career high, which was 43 points on March 5th in 1969 in Milwaukee. And I went to Tim Buckley, who at the time was the Deseret News beat writer for covering the Jazz. And I said, Tim, you ought ought to do a story on the anniversary coming up of uh, Jerry's career high. And I said he was 19 for 36 from the field, five for six from the foul line. And he goes, you know, that sounds like a, a good story. Well, he comes back to me in a few days and says it was uh, so fun because he talked to a couple of the players about it. and One of the players he talked to is current uh, Jazz uh, TV analyst Matt Harpring, and and Harpring looked at T-Buck and said, Coach took 36 shots in a game? I can't (laughs) believe it. And uh, so Jerry had no idea why, but for the next two days, Harpring at practice would call Jerry Kobe.
0: Oh, I'm sure Coach loved that. The one thing, it, like being called the nickname of somebody else and not knowing what that was about, yeah, I'm sure that had him.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, he, you know, one thing about Jerry was the fact that he loved the camaraderie of team. I mean, he, he was, you know, uh, even after they long retired, he was always in contact with his old teammates in Chicago, devastated when uh, Norm Van Leer passed away, and then a week later uh, his uh, first coach, and, Former teammate with the Baltimore Bullets, uh, Johnny Red Kerr, passed away. Yeah. And then a few years later, his center and probably his closest friend on the team, Tom Borwinkle, passed away. And I was asking uh, Jerry about Tom, and he said, When I was living in uh, Northbrook, a northern Chicago suburb, he bought the house behind me. And I Tom know. was the center. He was seven feet tall. And so uh, Jerry was uh, uh, getting his morning coffee, and he happened to look out back, and Tom was putting up a fence. And so he goes out and goes, Tom, how tall is this fence going to be? And Borwinkle responded, about six feet, nine inches tall. That way I can see into your backyard, but you can't see into mine.
0: (laughs) What was your favorite Jerry Sloan moment when he was a player, when you were watching him as a a fan and as a person who loves sports so much?
1: Well, there's a couple, one on the floor and one kind of on the floor. One on the floor was – he didn't care who was coming down the lane. He didn't. Uh, he loved to be the guy to take the charge. He wanted to take 10 charges a game, and he didn't care who was coming down the lane. He was willing to take the punishment because mm-hmm. Jerry wasn't a flopper. And I remember one time he stood his ground and got absolutely flattened by Wilt Chamberlain. I mean, that was a big, big man, and uh, Jerry just popped right back up and... Uh, challenged him face to face and uh will kind of backed off a little bit uh so that i remember that in the time that uh, he and his uh running mate in the backcourt Norm van Leer, uh some fan uh poured a beer on them uh on the bench in milwaukee and the two of them went up into the stands and let's just say that uh, the fan regrets his decision to do that and of course back then you know, they were just uh, protecting the bench, protecting their teammates, and so there were no fines, no suspensions, uh, no nothing. It was just uh, policing the situation.
0: Oh, man. <laughs> it was so like when Ron Artest goes up into the stands, right, in 2004, were you thinking to yourself, well, I never thought I'd see this again, right? Like... <laughs> <laughs> I never thought there'd be a day I would see something like this again. And, and no, with no, that, no. television's so different, right? And and yes. the reaction was obviously so much more because we were in the age of television and information.
1: Yeah, because back then uh, when that happened in Milwaukee, there maybe were, you know, seven or eight games a year on TV. So it was just, uh, I'm sure not a lot of people saw it, not, and there were no video boards in arenas, arena, so there might not have been any film to send to the NBA office. No,
0: no, not at all. Steve Klauke with us here on the Tony Parks Podcast here today. Uh, We knew the news was going to come down uh, with minor league baseball and and the season being canceled. It it was expected for a while, but what were your thoughts uh, now that it has become a finality?
1: Well, you're right. It was was something, I I guess, uh, there was maybe – 0.01% 0.01% of me thinking that they might be able to work something out so that at least AAA would be played, because my thought process was, well, have a team at AAA, so if there's injuries uh, during the 60-game schedule, you have guys ready to go, but uh, apparently that was not of any interest to the folks involved in Major League Baseball, so I, I just, you know, when it, it it kind of already sunk in weeks ago, but when they finally made the announcement yesterday, it's just You know, you see some of the uh, things on social media talking about, you know, overpaid players, don't worry about them. Now they'll just have to get regular jobs. But those folks uh, tend to forget about all of those people who have jobs because of the sport. I'm talking about uh, front office staff, concessionaires, uh, ushers, parking lot attendants even the, the restaurants in the areas around the ballpark who survive based on what they make on, on game night. There's a lot of people affected by this, not just the players. And it's just so so sad. And the thing about it is, for example, our our, our friends uh, to the north and south, uh, the Ogden Raptors and the Owls, the Pioneer League is on the shopping block for the uh, changes that Major League Baseball wants to make to Minor League Baseball, and the new collective bargaining agreement for ne- that starts next year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they won't be able to give themselves a send-off because uh, they were going to try to do that uh, uh, this year. So uh, it's really sad on on a lot of uh, accounts. And like I say, 40 to 42 teams were going to be on the chopping block. And from what I've read, there are some teams that, that, unless they get some financial help from the government, that they'll probably have to fold their tents as well. So I think what we know of minor league baseball from 2019 it will not look anything like that when the first pitch comes in 2021.
0: No, no, it will not. I think it's it's going to be very eye opening. You talk about the numbers of people affected by it. Uh, this past weekend, Sunday morning, the K crew, which you know of very well, as they they go and post the strikeouts. You know when they happen during the games, and they're very vocal during the games and and uh, family friendly. They they never get out of hand yeah. by any means. Uh, we actually had a tailgate party on Sunday morning, a socially distanced tailgate party. It was a lot of fun, and it was great just to see them again and feel that camaraderie again. But, man, it also made me sad to leave knowing there wasn't a game, you know? And a the, the lot of uh, these people that were talking to me about it talked about how they were uh, affected by no baseball in indirectly, like even with some of their work life and, and things like that. So... What you're talking about is so real. What were your thoughts initially about the 60-game season, how long it took for all of that to come together, and the way that they feel like they've uh, been able to structure that?
1: Uh, You know, if they had just agreed to it from the beginning, which apparently they did in March, that uh, you know everything would have been fine and people would have been looking forward to it. But because uh, they decided to reopen, maybe try to, you know, uh, the owners wanted to lessen the financial burden and give them only a percentage of their salaries and the players wanting an extended season so that they can make more money that uh, from a PR standpoint, I think it, it caused some irreparable damage that the uh, uh, when uh, they were hassling back and forth, and we were everybody was hanging by a thread, wondering whether or not there was going to be a season of any length. Right. So I, I think they've done some uh, damage, and it's going to be uh, very interesting to see how long it takes people to uh, uh, come back to baseball, uh, even if it is just a sixty-game schedule. So I, uh, I guess something's better than nothing. But part of me thought, well, the, the, you know, come May or June, when things weren't uh, Uh, Looking uh, promising as far as the virus was concerned, I would have just banged the season and say, "Hey, this just uh, isn't going to work. Let's prepare for 2021."
0: You call baseball games. Are you going to be like sharpening up a little bit, like watching the games and getting your rhythm and going through the reps by, you know, like uh, I I guess what would be a. What is it a bullpen session I don't know what we call it in the broadcast world <laughs> i've been I've been calling some play by play for rBI baseball, but I must say it's a little faster paced uh but but like is that something you plan on doing? is calling specific games to make sure that rhythm is there uh
1: probably not just because it to to me it's 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 not the same and actually quite frankly with the you know being placed on furlough back in in May, we had to make some cuts around the house, and I don't know that on'm I think I got the lowest level direct TV package available, so I don't think I get any sports channels, so I won't be able to watch any anyway. I think it'll be a challenge uh, because the TV broadcasters uh, won't be able to travel, so they're going to have to do road games off of monitors at the ballpark or in a studio. Uh, Radio, uh, they're going to be given permission to travel if they want. I did read, for example, where uh the Cubs broadcast crew has on radio uh Pat Hughes has opted not to travel that they will do road games from uh from their booth at, at Wrigley Field so it's going to be a challenge much like it will be for Craig Bolerjack and, and David Locke uh, trying to call the the games off uh, off monitors from Orlando for the NBA because there's not going they're not going to allow broadcasters even the network guys ESPN and TNT have to be uh, at a remote studio to call the games. They can't be courtside like they usually are.
0: Right. Steve, you, people know you as a play-by-play broadcaster for baseball, but I don't think people have any idea just how good you are with many other sports. Uh, the one sport they'll never know about is hockey, which I, I had the honor of producing some games, like, in 2003. You were filling in for Bob Hoffman, I think, uh, calling uh, games for the Utah Grizzlies. You were phenomenal, I thought, and I'm not just being nice. Like, it was outstanding work and you're talking about you're rusty and off you know and I'm like man if this guy's rusty and off and that's the, I mean like I don't even know what to think about what I could bring to the game of hockey but no I I, I personally think your hockey is as good as anyone I've ever heard but out of all the games you've ever called outside of the game of baseball what are some of your favorites is it Donovan's 41 is it like what were some of those that are the most memorable
1: well, that's a good one. I think probably there's a few really. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking off the top of my head uh, there would be the uh, uh, the one playoff game I got to do for the Jazz. It was against Portland. The Blazers had won the first three games. It was in two, the 2000 playoffs and mm-hmm. Greg Anthony missed a three in the, from the right corner that would have sent the game into overtime and instead he missed it and the Jazz won. And I think I said Portland. You can put the brooms away. There will be a game five. It was kind of cool because later on I heard that call on a couple of different networks, so that that was kind of fun. Um, You know, in 2016, when I got the chance to uh, do six games for the Angels, the first series was in Seattle, and I can remember, uh, you know, getting there at about two o'clock for a seven o'clock first pitch and looking out over then Safeco Field and feeling comfortable. And then like two, uh, maybe two minutes before my first uh, shot on the air, Mark Lubasaw, the former major league pitcher, comes over from the Angels TV booth and gives me the Leslie Nielsen to Peter Graves. We're all counting on you speech from (laughs) (laughs) airplanes. But uh, that night, the game winning uh, single brought in the two runs was by D.J. Krohn, who, of course, we all knew from the Utes and from the Bees, so that Mm -hmm. was kind of fun. And then the next night, Albert Pujols hits a a three-run homer uh, into the upper deck at Seattle in the ninth inning to cap off a a comeback win, which was an an absolute thrill. As a matter of fact, the next day, one of the writers said, well, that must have been fun to call that game-winning home run by Albert. And I said, a lot more than the first one. And they looked (laughs) at me kind of strange, and I go, yeah, because in 2000, he was a 19-year-old up from Peoria playing for the Memphis Redbirds, batting seventh and playing left field. And he had an opposite field home run in the bottom of the 13th to give Memphis the PCL championship over the buzz. And he looked at me and he actually he made an article about it. Made a story, wrote a story about the, the whole uh, – uh, Albert Pujols' home run thing. So uh, those are a couple of things that uh, that jump out at me. I also remember the first time I ever filled in for Hot Rod, December first of nineteen ninety four. Uh, they lost it home to the Portland, or excuse me, to the Minnesota Timberwolves. Horn- Jeff Hornacek uh, was fouled on a shot uh, at the buzzer that could have his free throws could have tied and won the game but the officials ruled that the foul came after the buzzer and of course there were no replays the fans were irate and back then with the jazz uh the uh, player of the game post-game interview that was uh, heard throughout the building was in the middle of the floor uh, and if it was the other team the visiting team that won we'd interview somebody from the visiting team and i was on the floor interviewing doug west I'd ask the question and every time he would start answering the question the fans would start booing <laughs> <laughs> So after about three questions, I cut it short and gave him his one hundred dollar Nordstrom gift certificate. <laughs>
0: yeah, you're like, you're. Let's just get out of here, man, before something really <laughs> bad ends up happening. Because <laughs> the last thing the, the last thing the fans want after a loss like that is to hear from a guy on the other team after they feel like their team just got <laughs> rough. <laughs>
1: exactly. Exactly. I can remember too uh, doing a high school playoff game. It was the semifinals. And it was the one and only time I actually got to do play-by-play from Soldier Field in Chicago. It was Antioch High School. That was my team against Robeson High School of Chicago. Now, Robeson was the Rams, and they had exact duplicates of the old Ram uniforms, with one huge exception. Instead of a blue jersey with gold numbers and trim. It was an orange jersey with gold numbers and it was almost impossible. The only saving yeah. grace that, that allowed me to read the numbers was it rained a bit during the first quarter and it darkened the orange on the jersey so I could actually see the gold numbers.
0: Oh man. Well, see that and that's what's tough with me being color deficient. I if mm-hmm. you do something like that, it's it's over for me. Like I I can't it, like it becomes impossible. In that. Realm. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. How, how could that ever be allowed, by the way? That, that, that's my I, don't know. Like,
1: I don't do know. You can't do that. Now, <laughs> nowadays, the colleges in particular they come up with uh, Nike and Under Armour and Adidas come up with these uniforms that are almost impossible to, to read the numbers. It, it, it is really hard.